Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, July 5th. <clears throat> right. 2020. The day after July 4th. Right. So it was a quiet July 4th. Yeah, but, you know, that's fine. That's fine. Um, we did cook on the grill. Yes. And we, we had uh, Sadie came yes. to visit us. Sadie came. But we did uh, maintain social distancing at all times. Well, sure, if you say so. I mean... <laughs> It's only our daughter. Um, I mean, I'm laughing, but we we do uh, we do take the rules seriously. Uh, I, I I don't know. I don't know. I, there there are degrees of that. I'm not sure. I'm in the uh, first first the tier in terms of uh, observing the rules, but uh, I haven't had any complaints, so I'm not going to worry about it. Uh, but yeah, so uh, well, we we observed July Fourth by uh, seeing Hamilton. That, that that was the way we uh, got into it, right? Right. All right. So, so we, we had threatened last podcast yeah. that we wanted to watch Hamilton online. And we did. We did. It's on Disney Plus. We have Disney Plus. And um, we were one out of God knows how many who uh, tuned into Hamilton uh, the first day it was available and saw it over a couple of nights. Uh, a filmed version of the play. Now, we had seen the play. Uh, we saw it at the public. We saw it on Broadway. Uh, this would be our third uh, viewing. What do you think? I still loved it. Yeah. Actually, it's very long. And uh, because of all the festivities, it took us two nights to watch it. Right. But, it, you know, it's, uh, first of all, it is great. What's striking about it is it's, it's a very well done film version. Uh, far superior to any film version of a play that I've ever seen before. And apparently it's no accident, as opposed to having a camera in the, in the second row, giving you a flat viewing of what's going on. They had uh, 10 cameras embedded throughout the theater. They recorded two performances. They, they cut it in various ways. They even had a camera from behind the stage to make it more dramatic. Uh, and when you think about it, that makes sense because... That's the way they do football games. When you watch a football game, once in a while they'll show you the truck. And the truck is, has shots from eight different camera angles. And it's the job of the director to make an exciting broadcast by choosing which shot to use at any particular moment. And they keep jumping around. And that's what they did here. And it paid off, don't you think? Daniel, I explained this all to you last week. <laughs> they spent $10 million making this film. It wasn't uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's dad up in the balcony with the handheld, okay? <laughs> all right. Uh, so, yeah, it, and it was worth it because it was so... First of all, Hamilton is a great musical, Yeah. okay? Give me a break, all you Hamilton haters, you know? There are no There's, Hamilton haters. Oh, there are plenty. Really? Uh, yeah, they're all about the hype, blah, blah, blah. There's no hype, guys. It's amazing, yeah. all right? And, um, but, uh, even outside of that, well, we have watched other musicals, films on stage, right? right? There's nothing and like this. And it's awful. It's, well, it's, it's just not, awful. It's not awful. It's lifeless. It's lifeless. It's lifeless. And this was not lifeless. Although, this was different. This yeah. was different. Sir, people look different from a close-up. Right. And you have a different and, chemistry and reacting to them. You experience it differently. Uh, and some numbers came off completely differently. Right. And, and and very generally generally very well. Uh, you know, there are one or two things that it's not the same as being in a theater. And one one thing that both you and I remarked on is uh, 
the the number, which I think in both their view was explosive, when we saw it on Broadway in person, the room where it happened, the room where it happens, uh, sung by Aaron Burr, just it was crazy. Leslie Odom Jr. But Leslie Odom, yeah, who plays yeah. Aaron Burr. I mean, it was just fantastic in the theater. And you even said, come picking up in our conversation last week about great moments watching theater. That was one of your. Great that was moments. a great live moment. Right. I mean, that song just rolls to a tremendous climax. Right. And he's got you in the palm of his hand. And it was, it was, and it was electrifying. Yeah, it was explosive. Uh, huh. So that didn't quite happen in our living room, right? Uh, but um, so I, I missed that. But it, it was still a, a terrific. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was so successful that I, you know, the impresario in me—that's a substantial part of me—can't help but say to himself, "Well, gee, why can't that be done with other musicals?" Uh, even if they're not as earth-shattering as, as Hamilton, uh, you know, isn't this not a new way to deliver musicals uh, that just shows, as opposed to a flat camera work uh, approach, something like this, sort of a combination of filmmaking and, and a play uh, that we might see more of with other productions? No, no, it's a tricky thing because... It costs money. It, it costs money. And uh, it just seems like nine out of ten... Films of musicals are awful. Right. But that's because I don't think so, anyone's you know, invested somebody, like this. You know, they get carried away, but if we did this and if we did that, right. and then, you know, suddenly there's another bomb. I, look, you know, you just do it the other way. I mean, the way the Hamilton guys had so much money that they used their own money and spent the $5 million and then auctioned it off and got around $75 10 million. million. Daniel. 10, whatever it was. But you do it the other way. You sell it to a cable network. You say, look, if you guys tell me at the end of the day you're going to buy it for a third of what Hamilton went for, $20 million, $25 million, you know, we'll, we'll put in the, the first five or eight know. million. We'll do know. it. I don't know. I think this is I have a, good few a of tremendous exception. Dear Evan Hansen's next. Uh, That's yeah, my yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So that was exciting. So That was fun. And also, and so... My mother did not watch Hamilton. Right. Well, she, she, but she watched 1776. She's working her way up to Hamilton. Well, you know, 1776 is a, is a glorious it's a musical as well. And that's a film. And, and that's a film that works as a musical. Right, but it's not a, a musical film, that works as a film. But it's not a film play. It, it's, a, it's a movie. It's a movie. They, they have it's natural a movie. sets. They have, oh, they have sets. They're in yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but it's not over-the-top silly. I mean, it's... Uh, no, there, there's but some, it really does. There are some great musical films. The top one in most people's minds, I think, uh, is for the on the roof, honestly. But uh, Oliver, great musical. But there haven't been many West great Story. ones lately, have there? No, no, not. Lately. Weren't you a little disappointed well, in Into the Woods? La La Land was great. La La Land was great. Yeah. So but was that ever a play? No, but it was a, it was a film musical. How do you feel about Les Mis? Uh, very fair. And as a matter of fact, and you know, I like Into the Woods. I didn't like the movie for Into the Woods. Yeah. So it, it's a tricky thing to do tricky thing to do so here's but, something else that, that's but, tricky. Uh, am, am i switching the sports yet or not no because well yeah you can switch to sports all right i don't want to interrupt you you got something no. else no? well i mean i i was inundated on july 1st this is obviously before july 4th with emails about it was bb day i didn't know what the heck people were talking about and i got it from more than one source i'm saying what am i missing uh bb day turns out to be bobby Bonilla day and if you don't know what that means, uh, you, you can be excused because it's pretty obscure, although at the time it was a big deal. Bobby Bonilla was a player for many, many teams 
uh, in the 1990s. <laughs> From many, many, many teams. teams. That doesn't sound good. It, it doesn't sound good. It was a very good player. There was a time that Bobby Bonilla and his teammate, a fellow you might have heard of named Barry Bonds, were the two best players in baseball for the Pittsburgh Pirates. That was at the, in the late 80s. And the Mets had a choice that who might they pursue in free agents. And the Mets, being the Mets, figured out the guy they wanted was Bobby Bonilla. Barry Bonds not having the same appeal. Uh, so Barry Bonds becomes the greatest hitter in baseball history. Bobby Bonilla, not so much. The Mets signed Bobby Bonilla to a contract in 1991. They were terribly unhappy with him after a few years. Uh, the contract runs out. They trade him in 1995, and he works his way through a bunch of other teams, including the, the Orioles, where he does pretty well. The Marlins, fair. The Dodgers, not so well. And believe it or not, the Mets, even though they had bad experience, bring him back. Bring him back in, uh, in 1998. Uh, and he's playing under a contract that he signed for the Marlins, but he's playing it out for the Mets. Well, here's where it gets interesting. Um, at the end of 1999, the Mets have had it with Bobby Bonilla. They, they made the same mistake twice. They owe him $5.9 million in the contract, and it's like dead loss money. They just want to cut him. They don't know what to do. And his agent does something very, very clever. He goes to the Mets. He says, look, I understand you don't want to pay us the $5.9 million. Uh, I'll, we can avoid that. Let's do it differently. Don't pay us anything. Don't pay us anything for 10 or 12 years. Instead of paying us $5.9 why don't you pay us over time beginning in 2011? That's a long time ago. Long time from now. And uh, why don't you pay us over 15 years? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, 25 years beginning in 2011. So it's, you know, payments going way out into the future. Um, and uh, that's okay with us. We'll just work it out by formula according to the prevailing interest rate, which happens to be 8%. 8%. Times were different then. And the Mets say, yeah, that's a great idea. You know why? Because the Mets have a genius investment advisor named Bernie Madoff, oh, who does things, my who gosh. guarantees them 10%. And the Mets never question 10%. You know, he's, he's a wizard. Of course, it turns out to be a Ponzi scheme. But they think they're, they're being brilliant. So they sign on to this. Well, it turns out, if you do the math, which I hope somebody did when they made this deal in 1999, when you start payouts in 2011 uh, over the next 25 years, while interest is accruing and compounding and so on, so the Mets are obligated to pay Bobby Bonilla $1.19 million every year for 25 years beginning 2011. 25 years of more than a million a year to pay That's off more a than 25 million. million. Yeah, more than 25 <laughs> million. It, it actually is 29.8 million. The Met geniuses signed on to this. Oh my so God. much so, over the last few years, the Mets have been making this payment, even though it's in excess of what their current players are making. Jake, oh Jake DeGrom God. is making less oh than They're paying a guy nobody remembers, and it was bad for the team. And it's, it was Isn't such it a sort of humiliating. It is humiliating. And so what they celebrate every year, or some people celebrate in jest, is the, the payments due July 1 of every year, and the Mets are, are uh, made fun of it. One person sent me an ad for a t-shirt that says, Bobby Bonilla Day, $1.19 million. So that's all. I'll leave it at that. That's what Bobby Bonilla Day is, July 1. But and you, you root for these guys, huh? Yeah. That shows them. Gotta believe. You gotta believe. That's right. All right, well, you had something about the Frick, which had a provocative Museum headline. update. Yeah, ding, ding, ding. What was the provocative head? It was something about uh, having a drink uh, with an art history person or something like that. Oh, raise a glass to art history. Yeah, there you go. That's provocative. Okay, well, um, let's see. Where, where do I start? 
well, apparently. I, you know, I, I'm always, I love art history lectures, yes. right? But lots of times they can be bad. Yeah. All right, and I have it's hard been, to imagine, but I, you say so. I'll take I mean, your word and, for it. I, and I have a tremendous tolerance, yeah. okay, because um, I have a huge circle of interest. Right. So uh, I'm willing to put up with a lot. But uh, and I have been going on going to Zoom lectures right. at various institutions, um, and uh, you know some of them have been good, some of them have been uh, less than stellar. And uh, I'm glad to say that the Frick has some fantastic offerings. Uh, this was uh, brought up in an article in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, there are two series that are online at the Frick site. You can also get them at the um, Frick Museum's YouTube channel. And uh, they are Cocktails with a Curator or Travels with a Curator. Hmm. And uh, the ones I've listened to, the, uh, they have two curators doing them. I've only listened to a couple, so I don't know if there are many other curators. But the two curators I listened to were M.A. Ng and Xavier Solomon. And they were superb. Now, curators are often good at curating, but not very good at talking to normal, everyday, art-interested people people okay uh, they get tied up in uh, their own uh, kind of scholarly minutiae you know in their in their little world these lectures were interesting accessible they did not dumb down i listened to one on uh, rembrandt's polish writer and i listened to one uh, by, uh, on a portrait by gainsborough of grace darable elliot mm -hmm. and in both cases the stories were fascinating, amusing, interesting, intriguing, and at the beginning of it, they pour a cocktail that is somehow suited to the subject matter at hand and uh, give you the recipe. Uh, so it's all, it's very congenial, it's very grown up, mm -hmm. it's very civilized, and completely entertaining and interesting. Uh, so uh, I, I also listened to one of the travels lecture, the idea being that uh, we're not traveling, but uh, some people like Xavier uh, travel a lot in their business as a curator. And, uh, you know, the idea is to take you to uh, somewhere a little bit off the beaten track. So I listened to a talk by him exploring the Cadoro in Venice, you know, and, you know, they're the big things that everybody uh, visits in Venice, like the Doge's Palace and the St. Mark's Basilica, etc. Uh, and uh, you may not get to the Cadoro. And uh, he did a marvelous job of connecting it in terms of uh, time and, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, um, construction, philosophy, etc. to the Frick, uh, because uh, uh, they both come about around at uh, the same time. Uh, again, beautifully done, entertaining. Uh, they have wonderful, uh, the video style is very good. They have in the center the subject matter, but the curator is always there on the side and talking to you, not just, you know, dully reading some script or paper. Uh, so I highly recommend go to that Frick website 
Cocktails with the Curator. Um, and they, they cover, uh, it's covering a variety of subjects, the travels as well, a variety of places uh, all over the world, really. And I think uh, that's a fun way to spend some time, unless you're like totally over screen time. Wow. At this point, of course, yeah. you know, I feel I feel late in game because uh, every newspaper you see, uh, you know, every article everywhere is, you know, what to watch on the computer no, no, now. No, no, okay, sounds, sounds good. You know, eventually this this will end and people will uh, still won't want to use their computers. Believe it or not, I think that's going. Well, to I've happen. been reading a lot. Have you been reading? Well, uh, you've been working on stuff. You're preparing to do a course. Yeah, so but no, you've been working on your I, syllabus. Listen, I worked my way through uh, from Russia with love. And that was not really that much about James Bond, right? Well, it, it, surprisingly, James Bond didn't enter the picture until about 60% of the novel was over, which I guess was artful. I mean, it wasn't, uh, you know, like a graphic novel. It was uh, character development and all about politics and all about the way spies operate. So I was impressed by that. So you're going to read more, Ian? I don't me? know. I can't tell. I mean, well, once James Bond got on the scene, it was pretty predictable. Not in a bad way, but predictable. Mm-hmm. I, I'd rather not say more because it gives away the one surprise in the whole book. But uh, James Bond, it turns out, is extremely resourceful. <laughs> well, you know, I've been working my way through the Inspector Montabano. Yes. And I still love that. And I won't, I won't go into that. I've been talking about him a lot, but I love him. And it's just so much fun uh, reading uh, something that takes place uh, in Sicily and written by, a, you know, an Italian mm-hmm. writer. So you get a, a fantastic flavor. But I also have been working on... Au revoir, tristesse. The book cool. about um, you know how to live like a Frenchman, basically. Oh yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. Great literature right. by Viv Groskop. Right. Uh, and uh, it's actually pretty good. Okay. It's good. It, here's the deal. It's not academic. Thank God. You know, yeah. we don't want to read uh, something highly intellectual. Uh, you know, for for entertainment, I don't. I'm not in the mood to do that at the moment. Um, it's more. It's almost like a um, blog or a podcast. Okay, mm-hmm. a you know somebody friendly, interesting, uh, you know, intelligent, talking about you know talking to you about various uh, great books, mm-hmm. some of which uh, you read, even though you were supposed to read all of them probably right. uh, in your college courses. Uh, at least you you know might be acquainted with some of them, and and so it has been. Uh, kind of fun, and it's made me go back. Oh, you know, I never did read much uh, Proust. Maybe I should, mm-hmm. um, but I've been, uh, you know. So I'm some stuff. You know, I have read Les Mis, uh, Les Misérables, um, by Victor Hugo. So to hear her, what she had to say about that, resonated a little bit more. Um, and uh, she also talked about uh, Colette's Gigi. And, uh, yeah, which was interesting. I, I know not much about Colette, but I know the movie Gigi quite well. Right. And uh, was interesting to take that back to the original source, okay. etc. cetera. Um, so I'm working on that. So that, like I said, Viv Grosskop, Au revoir, Tristesse. It's very conversational, okay. you know, but uh, you're still reading. And I read a new book, Writers and Lovers, by Lily King. I read that because it was recommended by Ann Padgett. Okay. And I'm, I do love Ann Padgett. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it turns out, entirely different tone from anything else I'm reading. Uh, but it was good. It was from the perspective of a fairly 
young person finding her way in terms of life, well, love, well, and it, writing. That's not by Anne Padgett. No, no, no. It's by Lily King. I see. Lily King's Writers and Lovers Recommended Well, no, by I, Anne, Padgett. Anne Padgett has her own bookstore, if I recall correctly. That's right. a big thing. Yeah, so we have to take that with a grain of salt. You think no, she was just no, promoting no, it? No, no, she wants no. to sell a few extra books? I, I don't think so. No, no. I, I take her at her word. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's some of the stuff okay. that's been uh, entertaining well, me. Well, let me uh, let me turn to something that's a little less entertaining. But, you know, I'm always eager to solve the problems at hand. And there's an article in the Times called What Coronavirus Researchers Can Learn from Economists. You say to yourself, well, that doesn't make any sense. What could the scientists, real scientists, learn from economists? But it's a social science. Oh, and you, having been an econ major, think yes. everybody can learn something from right. economists. And here's, it, but it is true. It's, it's a very interesting article. And it, it's, <laughs> fascinating. It's, it's fascinating. So okay. here's the deal. They say there are new drugs, obviously, that are constantly discussed in connection with COVID-19. And they're focused on uh, dexamethasone. And they say, well, you know, what kind of testing does one really want to do? What do you feel is necessary before you feel confident prescribing dexamethasone with respect to COVID? And the standard approach uh, in the natural sciences, uh, in medicine, is to do uh, uh, a longitudinal study, a blind test, what's called a random test, in which you have a control group uh, who are given something uh, that turns out to be nothing like water. And the other group uh, is given the drug that's being tested. This is, in this case, DXM, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, then you compare the results. The problem with that is it takes time. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're going to run into with respect to vaccine, too. And uh, nobody wants to take the time. Well, that's not the way economists do it. What economists look for are natural experiments, situations in which circumstances came about that were not set up by anybody, not by the economists, not by medicine, not by anybody, but they just came about. And they give you the opportunity to compare the experience of two populations and therefore draw a conclusion. So let me give you a simple one. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's one that some people talk about. So at a certain point in Helena, Montana, they passed the kind of ordinance that we've had here, which they say there'll be no more smoking in bars or restaurants. And that goes on for six months or a year. And after that, it gets repealed. All right. Mm -hmm because of change administration, that's fine. So someone said, you know, it might be interesting to see what was the experience of uh, heart uh, ailments, because there's people believe that there's a link between smoking and heart ailments. How many people are going to the hospital with heart attacks and the like during the six months or a year where the ban was in effect? Mm -hmm. So they don't have to do any longitudinal study. They're just observing what actually happened right. in Helena, Montana. And they were able to draw conclusions from that, which are the conclusions you'd expect, which is mainly that smoking has a substantial uh, well, they can cite observations. They can't, uh, they can't demonstrate prove... any link. Well, you got to be careful with, with the nomenclature there because, frankly, even in a longitudinal study, you can't demonstrate any link. You're, you're always citing observations. Right, okay, all right. Okay? All right. And then they actually talk about what you might do with respect to dexamethasone to take this approach. For example, you might say, okay, there, were, uh, there was a certain part of the country that had DXM available, a certain part of the country didn't. Let's compare their experiences with COVID-19 over two months. There is one, one set of hospitals that decided to use it, one set of hospitals that didn't use it. They might also compare the situation. There's always a threshold. Mm -hmm. so people are given a DXM if they're above uh, or below a certain oxygen level in their bloodstream. Mm -hmm. They're not given if it's above. Let's compare the two people at the edges. There are ways to do the natural experiments here and to cut short 
a longitudinal study. Any event, it's just an approach. It's the idea of economists once again ruling. So the you're world. not really doing an experiment. No, you're, you're just finding data that's already there. Experiments are done. Yeah, it's a natural experiment. Right. Well, that's an time. interesting idea. That, yeah. that definitely would augment yeah. uh, right. whatever else they're finding out. Exactly so, right. And we, and we need to do that. This, okay. a, a lot of aspects about this are so confusing. Okay. So, oddly enough, um, my next uh, subject is a podcast. Yeah, well, first of all, let me say, what, give the name of the podcast. before I Table Manners. Okay, and tell us a little about it, then I'll, then I'll weigh in. Um, so... Uh, I, I was just flipping through the arts and leisures, and there's a big article about a singer-songwriter, Jessie Ware, a young woman, 35 years old, uh, etc. And, uh, I mean, I know nothing about her, and I don't even know why I'm reading the article. And then it turns out most of the article is not so much about uh, her latest um, album or whatever. It's about her podcast that she has with her mother, Lenny. And uh, apparently they have a great chemistry together. Yeah. And uh, Lenny is a great cook. This is all based on uh, a family history of Friday night dinners and having a guest and chatting with that guest. And they have all kinds of guests. They have Alan Cumming, John Legend. Um, they have cooking people like Jamie Oliver, Nigella Lawson. Is that her name? Nigella, Nigella Lawson. Ni we know. just call her Nigella. Nigella. Right. Uh, yeah. And uh, musical stars Gregory Porter, Carly Rae Jepsen, you know, all kinds of people. Now, I, I listened to a little bit of the Nigella. People we've turned down. But, but yes, go ahead. <laughs> and it is, it is kind of fun. Again, it's, uh, you know, it's interview-based. Right. They always have a celebrity. Right. Uh, but it's also conversational. Um, like ours. So, uh, you know, I think it it might merit uh, more attention from me. When I finish Cocktails with a Curator. Yeah, I listen. I listen to uh, about 18 seconds of one of these podcasts, and it doesn't measure up to Pam's in the day and read the paper. So well, I, don't, I don't want to overpromise. You know, well, okay? but, you know, there it, there are some quiet moments in everybody's life, and, you know, right. maybe this would... Uh, Put you to sleep. Yes, and, there is that. Uh, um, All right. Do we have anything else on that, or should I? No, I don't, I don't have anything else All on right. that. Okay. Table manners. Table manners. Give it a shot. I, I don't, you know, I was yeah. thinking, well, I couldn't help but What's think, better than food and uh, maybe entertainment? Maybe your mother should do a podcast. Did that uh, pop up as a possibility in your mind? No? No. Maybe Tamsin and Sadie read the paper, or, you know. I have my hands full just wrangling you, Dan. Yes, okay? I'm trying to. Are you trying to, you know, get horizon. rid of me? Widen your horizon. All right, to move on. So Hugh Downs passed away at the age of ninety-nine. I can't even believe that. That he's ninety-nine, or that he's still alive. I think alive? he should have been one hundred and twenty-five he, because I remember Hugh Downs from way, way, yeah, way back. We all do. I mean, he was he was on the Today Show pretty much a thousand years ago. They have a photograph of him on the Today Show in nineteen sixty-six, which, if you do the math, actually it turns out to be a fifty-four years ago. I mean, is that possible? I guess it is. Um, and uh, he was after. Well, uh, they also have a picture of him in the '90s with uh, Barbara Walters. Barbara Walters looking like Barbara Walters, and what the '90s? The '90s, whoa! And he also uh, did Concentration, that show where you have to memorize what's on the board and match the thing. He, the man, Renaissance man, you know, polymath. Not a Renaissance man. No, but, but he, he uh, was a he very was, good broadcaster. He was, and he was people were extremely comfortable with him. He was uh, sort of a Walter Cronkite type presence. But not as gruff. 
No, not as gruff. But not, he had a commanding a, nature. Not as serious. Yeah. Uh, and, and you yet, were comfortable having him in your home. And totally trusting. Yes. Which is why my father, in, uh, I'm going to say, what it would it be, about 1960, uh, a few years before this picture was taken, who at that time was in a business in which they were selling what they called presidential educational wheels. These were things which, uh, cardboard constructs, which had all kinds of information on the various presidents, and you turned the wheel and the appropriate information for the president came in the right slot, you know, where he was born, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, they decided that that mail order business would take off if they advertised on the day show. And in particular... So your father and his partners had a product. Right. And uh, this is a mail order business. Yeah. And uh, so they decided to advertise big time. That's this, this, super big time. That is well, super I big time. I cannot imagine. It's a, people don't appreciate this, but to get Hugh Downs was going to read the ad. Hugh Downs was going to read the ad on, on, the, Today on the Today Show. Oh, and And, and uh, you know, it sounds like a Gene Shepard story at this point. So, and, uh, well, to cut through it, it actually happened. I mean, it, it's not a shaggy dog story that didn't happen. It actually happened. I can happened. just see the cute little Abby Hoff family all you know, with their cereal bowls. That's exactly what happened. Was, we <laughs> Staring were, at the black we and white. We were five or six years old, uh, sort of huddled around the television. You know, today's show was an early morning show. His spot was early because he didn't want to pay too much. So maybe it was 6.45 in the morning. And we were going to watch Daddy's product on television. And Hugh Downs himself was going to talk about it and lovingly hold it in his hands, sort of cradle the product and tell people that this is what you ought to get for your youngsters. Uh, to prepare them for what's going to follow over the next 30, 40 years. And uh, that actually came to pass. Uh, so that was so exciting. I can only think of Hugh Downs in that way. I can't say that it resulted in a lot of sales of the product. I can't say that the uh, money for advertising was necessarily well spent. It might have picked things up a little bit, but it didn't cause the business to turn a corner. But, uh, and yet, a very exciting event. And uh, to have Hugh Downs behind us was, was mind, mind-boggling. Yeah, it just reminds me of, like, uh, Bye Bye Birdie. <laughs> yeah. Or being on uh, the Ed Sullivan Show yeah, or something. Yeah, it was. You know? It was crazy. We're going to be on the Today Show. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, so, you had just a short bit about uh, pianos, I thought. Yeah, right? I mean, it's the same old story. <laughs> Guess what's selling yeah, during pianos. the uh, pandemic? Right. Pianos. Well, particularly now, pianos piano. have not been selling for a while. Yeah. Okay. And uh, in fact, um, it, it's hard to get rid of an old piano these yeah. days. People end up just throwing them out, which uh, was shocking to me. But that's that's been the case for quite a few years now. It's not the um, necessary parlor accoutrement that it was in 1909 accoutrement. when um, 1909 was the height of piano sales acoustic piano sales in America they sold 364,000 pianos that year currently people sell around 30,000 pianos a year yeah, well, it's, it's, okay. it's a different. Not counting digital. Digital is yeah. you know, different. Yeah. That, but that's what's picking up is, more than anything is digital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, the piano guys were down in the dumps right. when the pandemic came along. They, they were thinking, this is nails on the coffin. Right. Okay? And it was anything but. Okay? Now, first of all, their institutional sales dried up because yeah. it's in the spring 
when uh, schools uh, make their, you know, plans to purchase for the fall, okay, new pianos or whatever, new lease agreements or, you know, that kind of thing. So that dried up completely. Nonetheless, during that same um, time period, uh, sales went up 60% over last year Hmm. in this spring period, in April. And uh, it more than made up for uh, those losses. People deciding, okay, um, you know, it's it's um, like all these other objects that people suddenly can't uh, live without bicycles, etc. Um, pianos, uh, you know, we've got the time. Let's learn to play the piano. So um, sales have been uh, going through the roof. Even old refurbished pianos are selling. In addition to digital, etc. Okay, even fancy schmancy pianos. Now, of course, all this, the stores haven't been open. So this has all been done online, on the phone, uh, whatever. And so this one salesman was saying, I can't imagine, you know, somebody buying a $20,000 piano, never having heard it. But it's happening. In fact, he even sold a $200,000 Bosendorfer piano to a doctor who said, you know, he's stressed uh, and uh, he's always wanted this. Now's the time. So uh, a little, uh, you know, uh, blue sky for the piano guys. First of all, I've never heard of a Bosendorfer, let alone $200,000 for a piano. We're not, we're not musical it sounds aficionados. Like, sounds like a submarine, but fine. Uh, yeah. All right. So a uh, couple of obituaries quickly. Uh, Johnny Mandel passed away. He was a composer and arranger. He, you know, he was an arranger. Uh, you know, I always think Nelson Riddle did all Sinatra stuff, but the Johnny Mandel did quite a bit, including the album Ring a Ding Ding, which we're listening to. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so he's right there. But he wrote um, uh, music for movies. He scored a bunch of movies. He wrote The Shadow of Your Smile. Oh, really? He wrote Emily, and uh, he made a zillion dollars by writing the theme song for Mash. Uh, Robert Altman was making M.A.S.H., uh, and uh, he had come, Mandela had come up with a tune, and they had to write the words, and, you know, Robert Altman was thinking of writing the words himself, but he's, he literally is quoted here as saying, I can't write anything nearly as stupid as what we need for this movie, so he asked his son to write it, <laughs> and his son wrote the words for uh, Suicide is Painless, which ended up being the theme song, not only for the movie, but for the television series that ran for close to 20 years, and it made... Uh, uh, basically, uh, Altman's son. You mean that? And Johnny. Da, 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 da. Da, da, da. Okay, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. It made Altman's son and Johnny Mandel a fortune. Uh, suicide is painful. So there you go. But uh, the, the obituary everyone was talking about this week was Carl Reiner. And so I'm not going to add on too much in terms of what you heard about Carl Reiner. I was surprised and pleased that people remember Carl Reiner so well and so fondly. Died at the age of 98. So Carl Reiner was born in. Here's, here's, the, here's a link here. He was born in 1922 in the Bronx. Well, guess what? That's when my dad was born in 1922, and that's where he was born Bronx. in the yeah. Bronx. The only, uh, obviously, somebody was on the wrong side of the Bronx because my dad went to be with Clinton and Carl went to Levander Childs, two different high schools. So I guess they're, perhaps they're, they didn't meet, although maybe uh, Carl Ronda's family bought uh, meat at my, uh, my grandfather's butcher place. You would like to think that that's the case. Uh, but... Uh, you know, obviously, uh, a you great know, I career. think the Bronx is a big place. 
Not then. Everyone knew each other. That's what I've learned. Um, and I actually, I was listening to, uh, I mean, the Times Obit is kind of what you'd expect. It's perfectly fine. But uh, they had an NPR broadcast, and they were talking a lot about uh, things Reiner did in that interview with him. And it was, it was pretty interesting. And they were talking in particular about uh, the 2,000-year-old man stuff he did with Mel Brooks. And apparently what, how that came about was they would sit in the writer's room for your show of shows. Uh, and that's the famous writer's room, which included Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and uh, Woody Allen and uh, Neil Simon. That is some writer's room. Which <laughs> is kind of insane, right? Yeah. And Neil Simon was the, the quiet one who just, you know, they had to sort of bring out of his shell. So, um, uh, and when they would get stuck, they would often get stuck. They, mm -hmm. What's the next gag? And they an idea. And to fill the time, uh, you know, Reiner and uh, and Mel Brooks would play this game. Like he would interview, uh, Reiner would interview um, Mel Brooks like he was a 2,000-year-old man. It was like, you know, mm -hmm. just trying to come up with gags or something like that. And they'd screw around. And they ended up doing it at parties. People knew about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and people, eventually people came up to him. As a matter of fact, it's funny. Um, Reiner talks about the fact that, you know, he was asked uh, by... Woman does fresh air. What, what's her name? Terry Gross. Yeah, Terry Gross said to him, uh, "What do your parents think about you uh, doing uh, comedy or being an actor, even?" And he said, "Oh, they were good with it because they knew that uh, Edward G. Robinson was Jewish, and he made a good living at it. <laughs> so they felt a Jewish person could do it, uh, and uh, that's what sold them on it." Well, years later, when he had a success. He got, uh, oh, the thing they didn't like, by the way, is he took jobs out of town. They said, why can't you just do all your acting in the Bronx? I don't understand this business. <laughs> uh, that was a problem. But um, so later on, he became friends with these people. And there, one of these parties, sure enough, it's Edward G. Robinson comes and says, oh, you know, you guys, let's make that into a play. I'd love to, to be involved in acting in that. And, and other friends, uh, Steve Allen said, you know, you just got to record it. Record it. I, I've got all the equipment. Just come by and record it. And we'll see. And sure enough, so the next they did a gathering of 200 friends, and, and they did it. And, you know, Reiner said, look, I would just throw lines at Mel, Mel Brooks. And, uh, you know, if, if he came up with something, we'd keep it. If he didn't come up with something, we figured we'd edit it out. It's, it's, it's like we do it, but we don't yeah. edit it out. And uh, But you could tell he, he set him up at some points. And the, the example he gave was um, at one point he says to uh, Mel Brooks, um, as a 2,000-year-old man, so how did the cooking meat come about? And I'm not going to do the Mel Brooks accent, but he says basically that, you know, we're sitting in the cage. We're sitting in the cage and everything's fine. We're all vegetarians. And one day a chicken comes by and stumbles into the fire. And we say, oh, that's terrible. Too bad for the chicken. And say, oh, that smells good. And uh, <laughs> we'll eat the chicken. And, uh, and Carl Ryder says to him, that's an interesting story. I, you know, but the way I heard it, uh, I thought it wasn't a chicken. I thought it was a pig. And Mel says, not in my cave. <laughs> uh, and, and the final, I guess we have, we ought to wrap this up. The final thing. Wait a minute. Did you have did did you have the record? Yes. I thought you did. Yeah. 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 Because that's, that's the first well, I well, ever heard of it. First of all, they did four records. Uh -huh. But I, I had the first record. You, you're saying you didn't have the record. No, no, okay. I never even I, heard of Mel Brooks. Well, so I, got I don't to want to jump. I don't want to assume too much. But if you were a Jewish person in Long Island, there was a very good chance. <laughs> And, and you and you own what's called a Victrola. Uh, there's a very good chance that you yeah, had the two thousand year old. And yeah. not only is it a good chance you had it, there's a good chance you listened to it maybe 180 times. Okay, that's the way that went. 
Uh, but speaking of uh, being alone, alone as a king, there's something that, that uh, I can't ignore, and it does tie into July 4th, and that is they had an article at Times about drive-in theaters. Again, one of those things that people are talking about in COVID. And what am I looking at? A huge marquee for what's called the Westbury Drive-In. That was a drive-in theater that was within a stone's throw, or called a mile, of where I grew up in Westbury, Long Island. And uh, apparently it it ran, uh, it was open from 1953 to 1999. Uh, and that's when they built their house, probably, in 1953 in the development. We moved in 1954. And that was an exciting place for us growing up. But mm-hmm. there was nothing more exciting than July 4th because the Westbury Drive-In would do the fireworks. Mm-hmm. Now, we I have vague recollections of seeing movies at the Westbury Drive-In, my dad tinkering with the speaker and stuff like that. But, you know, it's almost sitting in your pajamas in the back of the whole bit. I don't have to bring a too strong an image on that. Let's skip that. But I will tell you that uh, the fireworks could be seen from uh, the bedroom that my brother Bob and I shared. And so unbeknownst to our parents on July 4th, we would, this is we're four years old, Bob's a couple years older than me, we would climb up, we risk death, really, uh, <laughs> climb up the bureau in the corner of the room. Now, it might have been as much as five feet high. You know, we'd jump off the bed and to crane, our necks, to crane our necks around to look out the corner so we could see the fireworks. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are you know, bombs bursting in air, and there we are experiencing it. Uh, and that is as vivid. That's my most vivid July 4th fireworks uh, memory. By a long shot, and, and frankly, the way I think of it, that's the room where it happened, Vincent, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so we've come full circle. We have. All right, so uh, that's all for today, folks. And uh, hopefully we'll be back again next week, maybe yeah. with uh, some special guests. Yes, we're looking into it. We're seeing if John Legend's available. <laughs> so we'll, see, we'll do the best. Or Nigella, at the very least, right. Nigella. She's got to pick it up from what she did for those other um, people. Though. All right, so this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhat. Look. Tamsin and Dan, Dan read, read the, the paper. paper. Boy, I, I don't know. there somewhere. You got See, a lot of programs that you're working on? <laughs> well, you got me thinking now. All right. You got See, me thinking. You and your mom. See you next week.